I feel like the fight for climate justice really didn't become it was always it felt like it was always real in a way but it didn't become an imperative <laughs> until the Chevron fire in 2012 you know we had been going for about 6 years we we're going pretty strong we had a really vibrant summer youth apprentice program where we're bringing kids who are normally hanging out on the street just doing a whole bunch of nothing but having fun <laughs> but showing them bringing them in and showing them how to grow and inspiring them with all these different kind of topics and history and whatnot and they had grown a ton of food that summer it was really really successful and at the very end of the program, right before graduation, like literally right before the last days of the program when the harvest was full, we were gonna harvest a bunch of things and distribute it, that's when the fire happened. Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. It was a year ago today when a massive fire at a Chevron refinery in Richmond, California, sent toxic smoke billowing into the air about 10 miles northeast of San Francisco. In the aftermath, more than 15,000 people were hospitalized with respiratory problems. You can see the flames as far away as the skies in Richmond literally turned black um, from the smoke of the Chevron refinery being on fire. The fire was caused by some repairs that Chevron needed to make, but decided not to make in order to save some money. One of the lines caught fire and the community sucked up toxic smoke and was bathed in toxic smoke for the rest of the day into the night until like two or three in the morning. You could literally see the actual fire from our front porches because it was so big. <laughs> the fire was so huge. You could see it over the tops of houses for, for at least a mile. And we were all told to shelter in place and, and whatnot. But what that meant for all of the work that all the youth had been doing all summer, what we all been doing all summer, is that it was ruined. We had no idea what was in the smoke. We had no idea you know, what the impact was for all that food that was growing outside at seven different sites. Um, we felt like the only thing we could really do was pull it out. And in that moment, the youth just said that, you know, we can't just be quiet about this, that we all share the sky, the that the Chevron doesn't own the sky, you know, and we all share it and they need to hear about this. They need to understand their impact and they take responsibility for it. This is Stories from Home, Moving the Just Transition, and I'm your host, Keenan Rhodes. Last episode, we talked about the evolution of climate justice, the early days of the movement in the 1980s, and the roots of environmental racism and slavery, capitalism, and settler colonialism. Peep the last episode if we've already lost you at this point. We talked to our friends Kali, Inksa, and Elizabeth, each amazing leaders in this movement of ours. They shared the importance of just transition, a framework for how to transition into a way of being that's healthier for us as human beings, our beloved planet, and the other beings we share the planet with. Again, if we lost you, don't worry. P. 
peep our very first episode of this podcast where we dove deep into what Just Transition is. This episode, we talk about the unjust solutions being propped up as ways to deal with climate change without really dealing with climate change or any of its causes. Some call them false solutions. And today, we're going to start with the false solutions at the global level, with the UN Climate Conference and the real solutions at the local level from the East Coast to the West. This episode, you're going to hear from Doria, Basov, Chris, and CJA's co-executive director, Benishi Albert. If the power's with the people, then the people must be bold. Fight to liberate the soil while we liberate our souls. Liberate the resource, change the story that's been told. We say that warriors filled with black joy. If the power's with the people, then the people... Most of the nation states are out there promoting are basically false solutions, right? Just things that uh, will have at best cosmetic change, uh, but don't get at the heart of, of the problem. And the deep part of the problem is that it's, it's uh, the capitalist mode of production, which is driving this crisis. That was Kali Akuno from last episode. So for me, false solutions come in a couple of different skins, right? There's the most egregious in my book, which is just like a shell game where somebody goes, I have a climate solution, and it actually is just a means to, to make money <laughs> and move pollution around so that it kind of gets lost in the accounting, you know? So for instance, for me, cap and trade, it's a false solution. Doria Robinson, who runs Urban Tilth, an organization in Richmond, California, that inspires, hires, and trains local residents to cultivate agriculture, feed community, and restore relationships, says false solutions are dangerous because they take attention away from the solutions we actually need. False solutions themselves are part of the climate crisis and will only accelerate it. Cap and trade and other market-based policies let polluters keep polluting making it slightly more expensive for them to do so. So they'll hopefully be incentivized to pollute less. These solutions are unintuitive and aren't actually trying to solve climate change. To really make a dent in climate change, you have to reduce emissions at their source and keep fossil fuels in the ground, not burned and then put in the air that we all share. And we have to make sure we protect our most vulnerable populations as we do it. This is how Basov, Climate Justice Project Director at Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., describes it, identifying a real solution. And if you look at a proposed solution for climate change, and if you realize that the problem it is trying to solve is not the fact that we are living in the middle of a climate emergency in which disproportionately communities of color, poor communities, communities in the global south are losing their access to food, their access to fresh water, their access to even a livable home uh, because of droughts and wildfires and floods and hurricanes? Or is the problem that this solution is trying to solve is how do you keep economies growing and how do you keep businesses profitable in the middle of this crisis. So one, you know, good set of guiding questions one can think of to evaluate uh, whether a proposed solution to climate change or a proposed solution to 
just about anything, but I will use climate change as an example, uh, is a real solution or a false solution? Are these questions. Number one, what problem is this solution actually trying to solve? Number two, whose interests does the solution serve? Number three, who is calling for these solutions and who is backing them? And number four, whose interests are not taken into account uh, and who is potentially harmed by these solutions? Chris Rodriguez, community organizer at Ironbound Community Corporation in Newark, New Jersey, knows this well. She's been fighting environmental justice in her neighborhood for a while, including Aries Energy, which has proposed building facility that turns human waste into something called biochar. When you, you take biochar, the root of biochar is sludge. You know, sludge is sludge is sludge. No matter how you try to change the name up, it's still the same thing. You know, and so they're saying, oh, well, biochar is cleaner than sludge, right? And so, again, how... You know, you're saying that this is going to be a, a, a cleaner way to to process the waste in our neighborhood. But how is it clean if you're still spewing out, you know, chemicals and it's still polluting our air? Let's take an example from the recent United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26, that was held in Glasgow, Scotland last November in 2021. Benishi was there. Benishi has been organizing in Oklahoma since she was a young person. I am a Yuchi and Anishinaabe woman. I make my home in uh, Muscogee Yuchi territory, actually relocated territory in Oklahoma, uh, which is also known as Tulsa. There was a group of families who would meet together um, once a month. Um, they took turns meeting at each other's homes, it was potluck, and they would get together and they would talk about what was happening in the Indian community in Oklahoma. I went to those meetings all the time with my with my father um, and others, and you know there were probably about five or six families. But when I reflect back on that, like that was an organizing group, right? This group of folks who like consistently met together, they strategized together, they talked about different things impacting Indian people in the in the state, and and then they would go out and like do work out and come back and share again. Benishi remembers community organizing being a way of life. The first time she organized outside of her family was just out of high school. I worked in a an assembly line factory. Um, it's just one of those jobs you get like when you're a young person and you just like need some cash. And <laughs> I worked in this assembly line factory, um, but it was the first time I had been organized as an individual outside of my family and I got organized into a worker strike um, at that factory. These two formative experiences led Benishi to make community organizing her life's work. In her early organizing days, she waited tables for seven years. I used to tell people I waited tables to fund my organizing habit, <laughs> and I loved it. She went to COP26 as a climate justice delegate, part of It Takes Roots. Our crew that went, you know, we're from a number of organizations, but part of a larger um, collective called It Takes Roots, right? That is um, Grassroots Global Justice, Indigenous Environmental Network, Right to the City, along with Climate Justice Alliance. And so that whole delegation was 60 plus 
people. What is COP26? The United Nations, you know, climate change convention. And so it's called the Conference of the Parties, COP, Conference of the Parties. This is then the space that they do annually to like bring people together, world governments and science and agencies to come together to plan out what is going to like be implemented. COP26, Conference of Parties. Also, COP26, Conference of Profiteers. At least that's what some climate justice activists call it. You know, there's still a very strong undertow of the role and influence that fossil fuel industry has in this space. This year, it was more exclusive than usual. You know, I think having the, like, COVID restrictions just made it easier for them to exclude a lot more people, especially those in the global south and indigenous peoples um, of this hemisphere, but, you know, worldwide um, had limited access to being able to get to COP, not only just resource-wise, but also being able to meet the health restrictions around COVID. So because of this, like that acceptance, that acceptance practice was really an exclusion practice, which meant then the largest badged delegation at COP was fossil fuel lobbyists. The very last part of the process is the negotiation about what's going to get implemented, what the countries are all agreeing on, what they're going to, you know, what they're going to commit to, and which is now being called the Glasgow Pact, right? That that space and process is very, it, it's it's challenging when you see how much those lobbyists and executives have been in spaces talking, having their ear, the folks who are negotiating, you know, having their ear and then being like, oh, man, like they got to talk to everybody, right? They got to talk to everybody, got to talk to all the countries and all the reps from the countries who are in the negotiating room. And we don't have that same kind of access. So it's not a big surprise to her and others that solutions at COP26 are often anchored around the idea of net zero. So we were really pushing no net zero and net zero being like a greenwashing effort to like allow business as usual for fossil fuel industry. Net zero is greenwashing. What's that you ask? It's an attempt to make a false solution look like a real climate change solution. You know, net zero is just a fancy term to say, hey, we're going to keep polluting, but we're going to figure out ways to like try to scrub the carbon out of the air um, and and do that in different ways. A, a, a set of, you know, or a, a campaign or a set of p- policies that basically say if you can offset carbon or pay for carbon offsets, it's okay that the pollution that you do somewhere else. Or in the instance of this, that like you can keep producing at the level you're producing um, as long as you can afford to pay for an offset somewhere else. COP26 led to the Glasgow Pact, a climate agreement amongst countries that was noted for being the first to explicitly mention limiting coal use. But instead of phasing out coal use towards the end of negotiations, the language was changed to phase down. And not just phasing down all coal use, phasing down unabated coal. What is unabated coal? The use of coal where there's no attempt to reduce CO2 pollution. The only way now to a big coal is expensive carbon capture and storage solutions. But so far, it's risky and unproven. Why? Most of the tech needed for this doesn't exist yet, and certainly not on a scale to mitigate the worst impacts of CO2 emissions. 
Carbon capture attempts to collect industrial carbon dioxide, compress it into a liquid, and pump it deep underground or beneath the ocean. To be frank, sounds pretty dangerous. There's no guarantee the CO2 will stay underground. Now, let me, let me clarify one more thing about carbon capture and storage. It is inordinately expensive to do, and it's not even proven to work at scale. So to scale up carbon removal to the extent that is needed to actually capture all of the carbon dioxide emissions currently being produced in the world would require a massive amount of investment. And going back to the example of the power plant, it will mean that the electricity generated will become inordinately expensive, right? And now let's look at another racial and economic justice issue. One fact that's not very widely known, something like 30% of people in this country suffer from energy insecurity, uh, which means that they have trouble paying their utility bills and they often end up doing things like skipping medications to pay their bills or turning their thermostat to an unsafe temperature to be able to afford their bills or even they fail to pay their bills and they get disconnected. And that's 30% of the population in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And then if you look at Black communities and indigenous communities and communities who are below the poverty threshold, and you have more than 50% of the population in those specific communities who suffer from energy insecurity. So anything that makes utility bills more expensive, which is what carbon capture in the power generation sector will do, will be a colossal racial and economic injustice. So any way you look at it, carbon capture is a false solution. And, and to put it simply, we cannot rely on something that may materialize in the next few decades to solve the problem of climate change. The agreement that came out of COP26, as with others in the climate change space, doesn't prioritize using an environmental justice or climate justice lens. The focus tends to be on saving the economy over saving the people. And this is always at the expense of the most vulnerable and historically harmed. Our, our governments and the governments of the world seem to be acting like that the main priority of dealing with the climate crisis has to do with, is the economy going to survive? When people are like legit losing lives right now because of extreme weather and drought. You know, we have to act as if, you know, climate change is a real thing. We have to act as if our pants are on fire and we should take immediate and dramatic action. The impacts are real and the science is clear. So why not the urgency? I asked Abbasov about the IPCC report released last year. IPCC, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, releases a yearly report on the state of climate change. This past February, the IPCC released a new report about the unsustainability of carbon emissions and the current pace of global warming, as well as the increasing number of climate disasters, water scarcity, and erosion of coastlines. The report that came out last year was pretty grim. I want to know whether these reports impact how governments are addressing climate change. 
But truth be told, the debate has not been about whether climate change exists for a while now. It's about what solutions fit the status quo and allow those in power to stay in power. It has become increasingly clear that the debate about climate justice, and I, and I underline the word justice, is not about facts and reason. It is about political power. This IPCC report that you're referring to would not even have been needed because the science had been crystal clear so long ago that if science is what was needed to win the day, we would have, as a world community, completely changed direction, you know, reverse course years ago. The fact that we haven't has everything to do with who has the political power. The Climate Justice Alliance released a statement urging the U.S. government and all world leaders to act boldly and courageously to reduce and eliminate greenhouse gas emissions at their source. It calls on the United Nations to stop bowing to pressure from fossil corporations and to reject false solutions. It included messages from CJA's member orgs, Panganga Pungowiyi, organizer at the Indigenous Environmental Network, said, I feel discouraged by the business-as-usual conclusion of COP26 in Glasgow. I feel encouraged by the tremendous organizing being done by Indigenous nations across the globe and by the great number of global citizens who see right through the business-as-usual of these meetings. The Global North has dragged out the urgency for decades and has dragged on the crisis acknowledged during the Paris Accord in 2015. For several years, the Global South and island nations, as well as the indigenous people in the Global North, have all asked for real climate solutions as we have already begun experiencing the crisis on our homelands. We need real accountability for the military. We need immediate cuts to extractive energy resources to avert a near-term extinction. Additionally, we are finished serving as sacrifice zones and experiments for wealthy nations who test theoretical techno-fixes on our lands and bodies. We are still going to be here, speaking the truth and holding people accountable. Doria and Chris, on opposite coasts, are both organizing around real solutions in their communities, focusing on the interests of the people living in their communities not the desires of corporations. My name is Doria Robinson. I am, I'm from right here in Richmond, California. Doria was born and raised in Richmond, a few blocks from the Chevron refinery. I am currently the executive director of Urban Tilth. I have been for the last 14 years, building out what we hope to be, what we aim to be a just, healthy, sustainable food system here in Richmond, pushing back on the climate crisis and extraction and all the things that are just bad for us, for our community, for our bodies, for the land, for the water. You heard her talk about the devastating Chevron Petroleum Refinery fire in Richmond, California in 2012 at the beginning of this episode. The noxious fumes sent hundreds of residents to the hospital. It just burned in us. It just burned in our minds. It burned in our in our hearts. And we were just like, we're not expendable. And it's not fair that this one corporation is more important than 
all the human beings on earth, all the animals on earth, that this, this practice of extraction is more important, that we have to be better than this as human beings. So, you know, when you're walking around in Richmond, it's really easy for people who live here not to even know what the threats are. I think that that's where the work of Urban Tilth comes in, you know, because Urban Tilth is this organization that's actually created by, run by people who live right here in Richmond. And I think we started because when we walked outside of our doors, we didn't want to only have destitution, only have the desolate kind of busted up landscape, you know, and kind of the the feeling that all we could do is kind of duck from gunfire and try to keep out of the fray. But we wanted to actually be able to have a destination within our own city that was safe, that was supportive of our health, that recognized our life force, <laughs> you know, that we were whole humans and deserved to be in, in spaces that, that supported our health. And I think that's where Urban Health really started our work. In fact, during the COVID-19 pandemic, Urban Tilth maintained a consistent food supply, even as global supply chains were breaking down. Things were set up to make profits first and not feed people first. And one of the things that we really learned is that, you know, during that whole crisis, Urban Tilth lines, Urban Tilth relationships with farmers never collapsed. We were never without food. We had strong relationships with local producers, like hyper-local producers. They had food. We had people who needed food. That focus on building the relationship with home, with place, and with geography is key to a real solution, to a just solution. Food systems is an abstract way of talking about interrelationship with land and natural systems. The reason why our work resonates so much is that the people who are here are whole humans who want to be in relationship to something else besides struggle. Something else that's, you know, feeds our spirits, feeds our strength. And that's what that's what this work does. One of the things that we've been really focusing on when we are talking about and trying to be clear about climate and the fight that we have is that we actually also need to really invest in and put in motion real solutions now. Um, and by real solutions, I mean things that go at the root of the problem and don't just treat the symptoms or gloss over what the root is. Real solutions to me are actually reconnecting people to land, are shortening supply chains so we're not sending an apple, you know, a thousand or two thousand miles when to to someplace in California when we could just get it from California or Oregon, <laughs> where where we actually create local food systems, and and not just because you come from there, but because you intimately know it through multiple seasons. <laughs> You know, you understand how the soil works. You know when the water is going to come or when it's not going to come. Like that kind of intimacy is something I think people crave and something that gets like beat out of you in places like Richmond, um, which are not uncommon across the world, really. My grandparents came up here from Louisiana, from the South. 
definitely running from Jim Crow and that oppression, um, which is a different kind of oppression, um, similar, different um, than what happens when you live as a low-income person in the city. Um, people are coming from south of the border, and there's all kinds of international oppression that's happening to pushing them, pushing them north, pushing them to try to look for something better. But they had a connection at one point in time to a place, to a physical place, to a land base, to a place where their their dreams, their spirits, their ancestors were buried, um, where they were very intimate with. And people miss that. I think it's an essential part of being a human. And I think the work of urban agriculture and food sovereignty and agroecology puts us back in relationship to that kind of sense of home, um, a home on earth, <laughs> grounded in earth that 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 we crave, that makes us whole. For Chris, Newark is home. Ironbound is a neighborhood on the east part of Newark, surrounded by a garbage incinerator, airport and industrial ports, two natural gas plants, a fat rendering facility, and over a hundred brownfield sites. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency defines a brownfield site as a property, the expansion, redevelopment, or reuse of, which may be complicated by the presence or potential presence of a hazardous substance, pollutant, or contaminant. It is estimated that there are more than 450,000 brownfields in the U.S. Newark has over 100 brownfield sites. We have one of the biggest Superfund sites um, on the East Coast. Superfund sites are places that are so contaminated with hazardous materials that the government gets involved in cleaning them up. So, yeah, Ironbound is definitely, you know, heavily polluted by, you know, different facilities. And, you know, we've been pretty much fighting it for decades, you know. Newark and Richmond, both frontline communities, at higher and more immediate risk to the consequences of accelerated climate change. Sometimes they're called fence line communities because these community members often share a fence with polluters, a.k.a. they live in close proximity to life hazards. Usually, these are places inhabited by low-income communities and communities of color, showing the systematic effects of racism, settler colonialism, and capitalism. These geographies are also sometimes called sacrifice zones, showing who is treated as disposable and sacrificial. And so what we're experiencing oftentimes is, you know, heavy pollution, right, from all these facilities, you know, that are operating in our neighborhood, right? We have the Passaic Valley Sewage Facility, which is, you know, an open source sewage facility, which, you know, the technology is out there to close their pits, but, you know, I know it costs money. At the end of the day, why hasn't it happened? I don't know. It, at the end of the day, it's like you're sacrificing the folks in your neighborhood for the greater good. And like, who's the greater good, right? Aren't we part of the greater good? You know, there's a big wave of, of garbage incinerators that were coming up. The only communities that actually received these garbage incinerators was, you know, communities like North or communities like Camden. And majority of the folks that live in these communities are black and brown, you know, undocumented, you know, families. Again, you know, they didn't put the garbage incinerator, you know, in the suburbs. <laughs> they actually put it, you know, in our neighborhood. And so again, 
That's why Ironbound Community Corporation is one of the oldest environmental justice organizations to exist. It celebrated its 50-year anniversary in 2019 and has an inspiring origin story. Our story is amazing. started as a daycare center, right? A, a, a bunch of women, they were like, you know what? You know, we need a centralized location where we can take, you know, take kids and each one of them take turns. And then eventually, you know, it, it grew into this daycare, right? Ironbound started as a daycare and naturally started to fight environmental justice. Environmental factors like kids in the neighborhood testing positive for lead poisoning, dangerous chemical tankers coming through the neighborhood, and planes flying low over the neighborhood polluting the airspace propelled them into action. Oftentimes, if you come to the Ironbound, you know, if you're sitting in Ironbound, you're often interrupted by the loud planes just kind of flying overhead. Schools, the teachers, they're often interrupted because the noise is so loud. The planes are so low. So back in the day, I know like one of the, the campaigns were like they wanted the airport to, to change the flight patterns. And they actually like stood out there with balloons and like kind of threatened the FDA and said, if you don't change, if you don't listen to our demands, we're going to let all these balloons up. And like all these planes were coming. It was just it, it was just amazing the things that, you know, these women would do to organize and, you know, make sure that they're heard. Ironbound has also been fighting the Covanta garbage incinerator for decades. It was proposed in the 80s when the state of New Jersey was looking for a waste disposal solution and ICC fought the proposal. Sadly, the proposal passed and the incinerator was built. I want to say it was 2017. There was a proposed renewal for uh, Covanta. Covanta is a garbage incinerator, a facility that burns trash for energy. Covanta is one of maybe two or three that's you know, in New Jersey, their facilities are often situated in black and brown communities, right? Communities like North New Jersey, communities like Ironbound. This facility, you know, where they're going up for renewals and they're advertising like this is the greenest, you know, solution there is, you know, we need investors, you know, to invest more and so forth and so forth. And we were like, no, like, how can you advertise that you're clean energy when you're spewing out toxins like mercury and lead, right? These are like the false solutions that you're providing our, our community members, that you're a cleaner energy. And how could you if you're, ta- you're, you're spewing out those toxins? We know that mercury and lead, especially lead, is definitely toxic to our bodies, especially kids, you know. No wonder, you know, and, and, and we're all breathing this, right? And so no wonder we have like one of the highest rates of asthma, right? And no wonder we have the COVID numbers, you know, was was crazy. You know, we stayed in the red zone because, you know, we're often surrounded by all these polluting facilities. So it's like no wonder, you know, no wonder. ICC organized an action to Covanta that ended up taking place on a snowy day. And despite the weather, young people biked to the protest. And the image sticks with Chris as a hopeful and inspiring moment. A group of kids, they're, they're called the Down Bottom Bike Crew. Beautiful, amazing kids from the projects. And we actually repair like bikes and we go on you know bike rides. It's, it's an advocacy um, bike riding club. And so we took our bikes and... You know, they were like, no, we're going to, you know, ask them to put them away. And they're like, no, you know, we're going to ride in the snow. And I'm like, are y'all serious? And it's just, it's, we didn't think it was going to snow that bad, but it was starting to come down heavy. 
And we had like maybe over a hundred people just marching in the snow with us to the garbage incinerator because we were like, you know what, rain, snow, you know that gar that garbage incinerator still burns, right? So we're gonna come out here and we're gonna march, and we're gonna let them know what it is, what we want in our community, what we don't want in our community. Ironbound is also fighting Aries Clean Energy. Even its name is greenwashing. Aries Clean Energy is trying to build a sewage treatment plant that produces biochar, Chris mentioned this earlier, out of solid waste on an existing brownfield site across the street from Newark's jail. Incarcerated people are vulnerable to environmental injustice because they have fewer freedoms to advocate for themselves when harmful policies and developments are proposed. It's still the same thing, you know? And so they're saying, oh, well, biochar is cleaner than sludge, right? Again, you're saying that this is going to be a cleaner way to process the waste in our neighborhood, but how is it clean if you're still spewing out chemicals and it's still polluting our air? And then to top it off, we have other facilities. So even though you might have a little fraction that you may be polluting, you have to take into account the actual cumulative impact that you plus every other facility in the neighborhood is going to have on an environmental justice community like North, like Ironbound, right? And so these are the false solutions that we often have to fight. And these are the facilities that we have to kind of combat, right? You, you try to mask what you're really do, trying to do in our community, like we wouldn't know that biochar is the same thing as sludge and we know it's prohibited, right? And so right now we're still in that fight because of, you know, language and folks defining biochar and sludge, but hopefully we'll be able to win and and Aries won't, you know, be able to do uh, business here in North, you know, because it's not something that we need. We need things that are cleaner for our, our environment. We need more. In fact, Aries is strategically working against the clock. Ironbound Community Corporation and other climate justice advocates helped pass a major environmental justice bill in New Jersey in September 2020. According to a press release by the state of New Jersey governor's office, New Jersey is the first state in the nation to require mandatory permit denials if an environmental justice analysis determines a new facility will have a disproportionately negative impact on overburdened communities. Shout out to um, NJEJA and all the folks who helped, you know, pass the environmental justice bill. And the way the EJ bill works is that it looks at the cumulative impacts. Uh, like it looks at, it, it defines an environmental justice community as a community like North New Jersey, right? A community like Ironbound, right? Who's often overburdened, you know, through all these polluting facilities. And so it tells, it mandates and says, you know, if there's a facility that, that wants to develop in our community, then you you definitely have to take into account cumulatively how are you going to impact that community. Based on this New Jersey environmental justice law, Aries' proposal would pollute in an overburdened community, and it shouldn't be allowed. But we know policy setting and the actual implementation after the fact can look very different if there are not those from the community engaged to push back and ensure the true intent of the law is followed. Over time, though, the hope is that bills like New Jersey's EJ law will protect communities like Ironbound from having to fight each new potential harm. Hopefully there's not a 10 years from now where we still have to fight stuff like this. But if there is a 10 years from now, you know that, you know, we have the right laws in place that's going to protect us. Because, again, oftentimes our communities are, are being targeted. Ultimately, 
False solutions are one that put profits before people and don't aim to actually reduce emissions at their source. But there are people like Doria, Basa, Benishi, Chris, and so many more who are centering around people and planet and ending the extractive economy. Let's go first and most directly <laughs> towards the health and the happiness and the space for the space to thrive. Let's, let's focus on that as our ultimate goal instead of accumulating capital and extracting resources. Let's create systems where the things that we need to consume are actually in a sustainable, recyclable cycle so we don't burn our planet out sustaining our generations, but we can actually save time, save space, save resources for the next generation to live their life cycles. It, it's, it's a cultural revolution that we need, quite honestly. And anything that's not focused on cultural revolution in my head and in my heart it, it is a false solution. And thankfully, we all know what this cultural revolution feels like even if we don't always exactly know how to get there. Together, we're practicing just transition. The refinery is still there. The other railroads are still there. The deep port is still there. But you now have, you know, 16 years of, a, of an op opposing force, <laughs> you know, of building gardens, now the farm, and creating spaces like taking back spaces and revealing that fertile, possibility that lives underneath. These communities are everywhere, dreaming of better and making it a reality. I hope, you know, one day I can tell you that as I sit in the playground at, you know, the projects in which I grew up, that I would no longer see the Covanta building from the playground anymore, that we'll see, you know, something better and greener. So praying and hoping for that. <laughs> this is Stories From Home moving to just transition. Next episode, we hear more from Basif about energy democracy. It is the ability of communities to determine what their energy system looks like in a way that actually addresses the energy needs of the community. And we'll meet Casa, organizer and climate justice leader in Louisville, Kentucky who will share examples of what real solutions to the climate crisis look and feel like. Until next time. Stories from Home is a production of the Climate Justice Alliance, featuring me, your host, Keenan Rhodes, story editors Jessica Zhao and Olivia Burlingame, sound editing by Elijah Pogues, and music by Monica Atkins, a.k.a. Surreal. The title of the track is Love Black Warrior. To learn more about Climate Justice Alliance, visit climatejusticealliance.org.